Let me uh, read this passage for us from Matthew chapter 5. Jesus saying to, uh, at this point, his disciples, because he uses this emphatic word in the Greek. He looks at them and says, you. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's the end of God's word. Um, growing up, I had this fascination with Christmas lights. Um, some of y'all have talked to you about this in private. Uh, it's this like weird obsession. My brothers and I, we would actually do our house like Christmas vacation. We went up and down the walls of the house. We went up and down the shingles. It was absolutely absurd and ridiculous. But what it did was that people came by our house and they said, oh, we want you to put our Christmas lights up. And so I actually got this business uh, started up putting up Christmas lights. And one thing I noticed uh, through the years of going to you know, Walmart or Home Depot or Lowe's at Christmas time to buy lights for people was that every year there would be like a few new things that these Christmas light companies would try to introduce. So one year it was like the year of pink Christmas trees. And so they were like, instead of just flogging the white stuff, they had pink stuff. And inevitably after Christmas there were lots of boxes of pink Christmas trees left, showing that people really don't want pink Christmas trees. Um, you know, there would be all these weird light things that would come out. And really what you came down to at the end was saying, you know, when it comes to Christmas lights, people kind of like the white ones, and they kind of like just the multicolor ones, but anything grossly out of the box or out of the ordinary, it's just not that desirable. When I think about this passage, and when I think about teaching this passage tonight, I want to, I want to resist what I feel like I need to do, and that's to take this passage and do something really novel with it and really make it cute or clever so that you can look at me and say, oh, man, he's awesome, or he must have done tons of study on this or whatever. I really want to resist that because this passage is so familiar, and it's so plain that what I want to do is just like, I just want to kick it through the goalpost. I just want to score a field goal. I don't want to do a touchdown. I don't need like this awesome, <laughs> man, that was amazing. I just want to look at this passage and say, here is what Jesus is saying about this. And I hope in doing that, some of you will walk away saying, man, I, I've actually heard a lot of the other stuff. I've heard a lot of the novelty, and pastor's trying to do something really weird with it. I want to just hopefully shoot it right down the middle with you. Okay? Now, what that means is that I have to define a few terms. Because I'm going to use this, this word uh, called the world. Okay? The world. And what I mean by that is I'm going to use that in, in antithesis to uh, what I would call like the kingdom of God or being a Christian. So that would be over here. And then the world is an ideology or um, a way of living or thinking where Jesus is not a part of it, where God is not at the center of it, and where sin is presently reigning. So in what Jesus is talking about, the whole Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about this kingdom of God where he is reigning and where things are wonderful. We talked about it last week, the blessings that come as being part of that kingdom. You can listen to it on the podcast. Um, but over here is this place where sin is king, and sin is reigning, and darkness is out there, and it is what is thriving and flourishing. 
Okay, so um, if you are uh, in here tonight and you're uh, maybe not a Christian or you're on the outside looking in, maybe you didn't grow up in a faith community or whatever, I just want to say that my intention is not to, like, be the pastor who's like, oh, here, here he goes. He's about to talk about the world and how stupid it is and how terrible it is and how, you know, we just need to get rid of it and all this stuff. I really, that's not my intention. And if at the end of the night you feel like that I treated that unjustly, um, I would appreciate you telling me that because I don't want to do that. I want to hopefully enter into that dialogue and engage fairly with people who wouldn't consider themselves Christians. Um, so I'm not using the term the world in a pejorative sense. Okay? Okay. Uh, in reality, though, that for Christians, uh, those of us who consider ourselves Christians, we, we probably need a little bit of disclaiming too. Because the easy thing to do with this passage is to hear it saying, now go be salt and light. Like, go be awesome for Jesus. Yeah! You know, we all leave and go eat the rest of the chicken or whatever. And, um, you know... Jesus says, uh, you are salt and light. And what happens when we hear just this moralistic charge of like, let's go do it, is that that tends to justify all sorts of behavior that isn't actually what Jesus has in mind. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to go share the gospel. And I'm going to go do it, and I don't care what people say. I'm called to go share the gospel, and I'm going to do it. You know, salt is salty for a reason. If it gets in a wound, it's going to sting. You know, it's like, I, the fear is that this passage has been used just to, like, give permission to tons of stuff that I'm not sure Jesus would exactly smile upon. Okay, so, so maybe we can try and back out of that and see what is going on here. And the other end, maybe, that some of you have heard this, and it's driven you into a paralysis of saying, yeah, I think I am a Christian, but... I'm so aware of my failings. I'm so aware of my sin and my shame and, and just the things that I don't do to be a good Christian that I'm never going to be salt and light. That this passage must be talking about those people, you know, the, the good people or the whatever. And so um, as we try to kind of rescue it from some of these thoughts, I want to uh, look at three different things. <clears throat> the first is what in the world is wrong? little twist there. thought I was going to say, what's wrong with the world? Uh, what in the world is wrong? That was not funny. Uh, second thing, what it means for Christians to be salt. And thirdly, what it means for Christians to be light. I told you, you can try and go straight down the middle. So the first thing here, what in the world is wrong? Um, we answer this in the passage by, kind of by implication. Because Jesus doesn't come out and just say, here's all this, the stuff that's wrong with the world. He comes out and he's giving this charge and then he's telling the disciples, here's who you are in the world. And so he says, the Christians, or my disciples, are to be salt and light. So by implication, that says a couple things. The first is this, that when we think about salt, when all of us think about salt, we primarily think about it as an additive. It's something that you load on your food over at the calf because it's, it's tasteless and it can be bland. And so you're like, golly, salt or hot sauce or whatever. But we think of it as something we add to it to enhance flavor. Okay, and if that's the mentality that we approach this passage with, we'll look at it and say, uh, you know, take it to its end. What we think Jesus is saying then is, well, this world is really dull and boring. And so Christians, we need to go make it special. And so we will do things like make Christian music. 
which is not always awesome. Um, we'll do things like create an alternative Halloween party because regular Halloween parties aren't good enough or something. Um, so that's not really what's happening here. Uh, in, in ancient times, in the time when this would have been written, uh, the first century, salt was primarily, primarily used as a preservative. It was primarily used to keep things from decaying, to kind of retard the process of when things are going bad. Okay? So let's look at the easiest thing to think about here, and that's just that's meat. So if uh, what they would do is they would take a, a piece of meat, um, and, you know, refrigeration wasn't a thing back then. So what they would do is they would take salt, and they would put, like, this cake of salt around the meat. And it, what it would do is it would slow down the decaying process. So you and I, if we take meat and we set it out on the counter, uh, and we just let it be on the counter, kind of, we're all getting sick to our stomach thinking about that, that's not going to end well. Um, that's going to end with flies and things growing on the meat and it turning that weird shade of brown before it, like, you throw it out. Um, and this is also the reason why at the grocery store, if you walk through the meat counter, for those of you who haven't entered into grocery store buying yet, uh, if you go through the meat section and you see the dollar off thing, uh, it's like, okay, this thing's probably got two days left before you don't eat it. If it says $2 off, you're cooking it that night. If it's anything more than that, don't touch it. <laughs> like, they shouldn't be selling it. Uh, run away from it. Because it's already started that decaying process. Okay, we know this about our teeth also. If you don't brush your teeth for a while, uh, things go badly. Um, not only does your breath stink, your teeth will start to decay and it will be really painful. Um, your rooms, some of you already, uh, right? Just the nastiness compounds. Um, what's the, phys the in physics, the term, like everything's moving toward disorder and chaos? What's that? Entropy? Yeah, entropy. Man, I haven't had that in the seventh grade. Uh, entropy, like the natural state of the world is, is entropy. Did I just say that like that? Um, <laughs> shaking head. I'll shut up. That's what Jesus is getting at, is that this world... Again, the used world, if left to itself apart from the restoring and the redemptive work of Jesus, is on this trajectory toward decay and depravity. Now, if you've seen the TV at all in like the last, God, how far do we have to go back? Not that far. There's just, there's stuff, there's terrible things happening. This world isn't just like this happy go lucky place, it's just always awesome. There are things that are moving toward decay and toward depravity. And the Bible says that without God's intervening, just in the world, not even in a, in a Christian way, you know, like not even through the church, but that the, the world actually, God is keeping it from being as bad as it could be. He's keeping that trajectory from just going on forever. And there are a lot of people who say that the definition of hell it's when God removes His restraining hand. When He just lets thing become, things become as bad as they could be. Kind of into eternity. So God is restraining, and that's why things out there, and that's why um, you know, the non-Christians aren't just like terrible, chaotic, anarchic, <laughs> anarchical, uh, whatever that word is, people. You know, who just like hate everything and want to kill people all the time. God is using what's called common grace to restrain evil in the world. Okay, so the world's in this state of brokenness and decay, and Jesus is trying to get that by using this illustration of salt. 
But he also uses this illustration of light. He looks at his disciples and says, you are the light of the world. And we'll talk about what that means in a second. But what is implied in that is that this world is in a dark place. That it's full of, of darkness. That if God is this picture of purity and life and light, then anything apart from Him is darkness and is lifeless. And is moving in that direction. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, I, I really don't want to build a straw man out of the world. Just this little thing, caricature, so I can beat it down with my awesome arguments. I don't want to do that. Um, but let's just take a look. Let's try to describe some things out in the world so that hopefully maybe we can come to a place where we say, yeah, it's not great. Okay, so let's think about just the way that the world primarily thinks about money. That something like money, which is not evil in and of itself, um, that when sin reigns, and that's kind of the currency of this world, is, is that sin is reigning, then money is used... Uh, it becomes a point of greed. It becomes a point of pride. It becomes a point of extortion. It becomes something that people want so they can have more and more and more for themselves so they can do things for themselves. Now, that again, as I mentioned, that's not always the case because God is intervening and even causing non-Christians to give tons of money away, and we thank Him for that. But money is used for power a lot of times. Another thing would just be power or authority. So in a world where where sin is reigning kind of as the king, power and authority is used to lord it over people and to push other people down so that I can be made greater and greater. Right? And we know this. We see this in you know, big-time businesses. We see it um, around the world in some, of the, in some of the governments around the world. That You have these harsh dictators who, I mean, in the, in the, the separation between uh, the leaders and then the rest of the country is just absurdly sad. So power is used for self-glory and self-gain. What else? What about relationships? And you could even go into, into sex and how uh, the world uses these things. Now, sex and relationships, are those are a good thing that God created. That were made, He says that people were made in His image, so we're relational because He's relational. And sex is this picture of how God loves His church. That, and it, that's weird. I understand it's a weird analogy, but He's saying it fully. I love you fully. I couldn't love you anymore. And I know everything about you, and I love you. And that's what sex is a picture of. And that, consequently, is why the Bible reserves it for marriage. Because outside of that, that promise, it's a lie. Because if you're not promise to each other in the covenant of marriage, then you could leave. The other person could leave the next day. So sex is used for self-gain and to manipulate and to control relationships and to keep people in when maybe they should go. What about something as, as good as service and community service? Um, and this is like so obvious <laughs> that we all do this, and I am not accepting myself from any of these things. That the way that primarily we think about community service is we do it when someone tells us we need to do it. So if your fraternity or sorority says uh, you need 10 hours of community service this semester, you go do 10 hours. And after that 10 hours, you're gone. Or if uh, maybe you have to do it for a major or maybe uh, for whatever reason, we tend to look at these things as I want to do it to fulfill my quota so that I can be done. 
And so this idea of service really is about self-serving, that I'm trying to get through my agenda so I can check it off a box or put it on my resume or whatever. And that's darkness because God created us for something better, and we'll talk about that. So hopefully that wasn't too unfair about uh, some of the things in the way the world works, but I want to try to point those out because we're going to have to see what, how a Christian interacts with this. So let's begin. How does a Christian, one who follows Jesus, is uh, seeking to be a disciple, how do we interact in the world? Jesus says that Christians are salt. He says that Christians are salt. So a Christian who's a true Christian, who is not just one in name, who's using that term for self-benefit or something like that, but one who is actually wanting to follow Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, I lost my spot. Um, means that that in situations, when you, when you are in the world, when you are interacting in the world, that God is going to use you as a preserving agent. If you're a Christian, God is going to use you to preserve goodness and to restrain evil. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, so I'm a pastor, and so inevitably I have lots of awkward conversations with people where it's like, I mean, because God, I don't know if you know this about guys, girls, I don't know if you know this about guys, but whenever uh, some, you're talking to someone, they ask you what your name is, and the next thing is, what do you do? Especially out of college, like career is just the biggest thing. So I'm tell, I tell people a lot, all the time, oh, I'm a pastor. And it's just like, whoops, you turn the conversation. I don't know what to say now. He's a pastor. Uh, I haven't been to church in 10 years. You know, like all this awkwardness just abounds. Um, on the go- <laughs> Oh, sorry, Chance. Um, and so on the golf course, I remember very clearly, um, I was playing with this guy, and uh, he, had, the, the cart girl came around this that's not pejorative. Like, she was a girl, and she was doing the cart. Um, she came around, and, uh, and he was like, I'll have, tw- I'll have a 12-pack of Bud Light. And, um, you know, so he gets it, and it's awesome or whatever. And uh, a little bit later, it comes. So what do you do? I'm a pastor. And you could just tell, like, he was just like, oh, shoot. Like, I was wanting to get hammered while playing golf, and now I feel weird about doing that. Now, my reaction in that situation is this. And this is not the right reaction. But my natural reaction is this. Oh, no, 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 like, no, dude, it's fine. Do whatever you want. And we feel that. If you are a Christian and you've been in a situation like that, you feel that. You're like, no, just keep doing whatever you want. But that's not true. That can't be true of us. Because if you are a Christian who desires to follow Jesus, then... When you have a friend who's about to cheat on his or her girlfriend or boyfriend, you have to say, don't do that. Because you care about people. Because you don't want, maybe that you don't even know the boyfriend or girlfriend, you don't want them to go through that because that's not okay. That's not kind. When you have, when you have friends who are just spending tons and tons of money and just drowning their sorrows through shopping, through indulging in, in whatever kind of entertainment they choose because you know that there's something really, really serious and destructive going on inside of them, for you just to sit next to them and be like, oh, yeah, that's a really cute dress. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah, you get that. Oh, he'll love that. Whatever. Like, for you just to grant approval of that is not helping. And so you have to embrace Part of what it means to be a Christian, not all, but part of what it means to be a Christian is that God is going to use you 
to restrain evil. And so that when people feel that tension around you because you're a Christian, that's okay. You may not like it. It may not be like the most wonderful thing ever, but that's okay. We don't have to run from that. And I'm throwing myself in there with you. So first is that we're preserving Adrian. But second, hopefully this is obvious, is that in order to be salt, we actually have to touch the food. Like, we actually have to be involved. So salt that, that just sits next to food, a centimeter, away, a centimeter away or whatever, it does nothing. Uh, a pastor from the 1900s, 1800s named Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said it this way. He says, as salt exists for food, disciples exist for the world. Salt does not exist for itself. Christians should not exist for themselves. Salt's main mission is penetrating food to preserve it. Christians' main mission is penetrating the earth. Salt that's a centimeter, a centimeter away from food is youth, useless. And Christians not living for people outside of themselves are worthless. Did you hear that? That if you are professing to be a follower of Jesus, or if you're not, and you see Christians who are utterly self-consumed, who are using all of the talents and time and money or whatever they have just for their own self-glory, Jesus is here is denouncing it and saying that's not okay. That you are to be in the world. You're to interact with it. You don't exist for yourself. And so, uh, thirdly under this, that when you think about salt, there, Jesus gives this danger. He says there's a danger then of losing your saltiness. Of losing your saltiness. Now, what does that mean? Because for you chemistry majors in here, you're thinking, hmm, sodium chloride, that's a stable compound. Uh, you can tell I've read things this week. Um, this guy named Mark Kolansky, uh, in what must have been a fascinating book uh, that he wrote called Salt, A World History. Uh, he says that in ancient times, salt was a piece of rock dug from the ground containing many impurities and that water could wash through it and dissolve the sodium chloride, leaving a residue that looked like a salt rock and even retained its original shape, yet lacked the flavor of salt. So he's saying that, that if that's true, we're going to kind of hang with that, that it's possible that as we are involved in the world, as a, as a Christian is interacting in the world and actually being a part of it rather than just retreating from it, into our safe little Christian circles, that as we interact with the world, that it's possible that as you do that interacting, that enough of that exposure will have the effect of washing out anything that's effective in you, of making you ineffective for the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think that this passage is saying, and I, there are some people who disagree with me, I don't think this passage is saying that if you go out into the world and you totally lose your saltiness, that it automatically means that you are not a Christian. Because that's just, that's murky and that's messy and, you know, I, that's a whole different discussion. So I don't necessarily think that. But what it does mean that, is that you might lose your effectiveness in the world. We have to get this. That the world wants us to be unsalty. Because we are that preserving agent, 
the people around you who live in the, that kingdom, they don't want you to be that. And so they want to do everything possible to get you to be ineffective and unsalty. And that's going to look different for every one of us. That means that we need to know about, we need to take the time to get to know ourselves and know where I'm going to be tempted to just totally give in and to lose that saltiness. For some of you, look, for some of you, it's drinking. It's rampant on a college campus. And some of you know, because you know yourself, that it is just really freaking hard to be around people who are drinking or drinking too much or drinking underage or wherever that is for you. But it's just hard to be around that without totally giving in. And so you have to be smart about that. You have to know, hey, I may not can do that all the time. I may not be able to be around that circle because it is, it wears on me. For others of you, you can't be around people who just have tons of money and who are just beautiful and who just wear beautiful things and have the nicest things because it makes you lust after that. I mean, long after, like you want nothing else. Y'all, I have spent the majority of my adult life in this category. Actually, in some of it in the previous category. I struggle with these things. Like, when I'm around people who just have stuff and awesome stuff and nice houses and all that, I suddenly go back to the house that I have, which is more than adequate. Many of you have been to our house. It's a, it's a great house. Praise Jesus for it. But I go back and it's like, oh my gosh, we need granite countertops. I can't believe we don't have marble. Like, it just gets so unsatisfied with what we have. And so I just give in. I, the way that I'm different in that healthy way just begins to disappear. Some of you honestly need to change friend groups. And it really may have nothing to do with your friends. They may not be like just these overt, overt, awful people. It may just be that what happens when you're around them produces this, this soup in you that is just unhealthy. And it makes you want to be something that you know that God is calling you not to be. And so it's, it's possible that we lose our saltiness. But Jesus goes on to say, and he gives this other illustration about the light. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus turns the illustration and starts saying, you're a light. Jesus says, you are a light of the world. And if you follow me, you are going to be that light. How? How does that happen? Well, first, what it means to be light is that what it does is light exposes darkness just by simply being light. Just simply by contrast, when it's totally dark in a room and someone lights a match or lights a lighter or turns on a flashlight, there's all of a sudden the presence of something that is unlike the darkness. Okay, that's so obvious, but that's okay. I want to make it so obvious. We have to. Because the very presence of righteousness or purity or holiness 
even how faintly we may show that at times, the very presence of that at all exposes that, that the world is different than that. And we certainly have darkness inside of us too. And I'm not saying that Christians like are just totally white and light and all that. The very presence of any of these things shows darkness. Think of it like this. Um, imagine playing football if there were no yardage markers. If there were no chains to show you where a first down was. If you just ran up and down the field. Um, I mean, it totally like the game unravels because it's all about this progressive march down the field of getting a first down so you can reload and kind of do it again. But if there are no yardage markers or if there are no downs, you never know what you're going for. And so in the same way, if, if there's never holiness or purity or, or light, then we don't actually know what's dark. But there is, so we do know what's dark. Um, I play golf a lot, and uh, some people talk about hitting 350-yard drives. Like, oh, yeah, I was hitting a 350 the other day. And I look at them and say, no, you weren't. <laughs> do you know how far that is? Oh, yeah, it's down at that tree. No, that tree is 240 yards. Oh, sorry. No, that really is right. The people don't have a category for if you go out there and throw a 350-yard stake in the ground, it becomes very apparent very quickly, I am not doing that. So in the same way, darkness shines whenever the right measure or standard is given. A bit more serious. Um, I have a friend who is doing some premarital counseling uh, with some neighbors of his who um, they are they're living together um, but they're, they're engaged, so, but they're living together, and uh, the, the wife or the fiancé is actually pregnant. And so, um, <laughs> like, that kind of uh, goes through the question of, like, hey, uh, are you all having sex? Like, she's pregnant. Um, so, but as they were going through this, um, they're professing Christians, okay? And my friend has every reason to think they, they probably are, you know, even though, like, part of their life may not be exactly lining up with that. Um, but they were talking about, and, and so because of that, he was telling them that, look, I'm a pastor who's bound to my vows to follow Scripture. And so if y'all are professing Christians, I have to tell you and exhort you not to be sleeping together right now. Not yet. To wait until you get married. Which is pretty awkward. They, sorry. They're his age. <laughs> Chance here doesn't like that word. Um, they're his age, so he's telling his peers, like, hey, I know you've already been doing this, but don't do this. And they turned to him and said, well, did you and your wife, did y'all have sex before you got married? My friend actually said, actually, no, we didn't. And he didn't say that as like this point of gloating or boasting or saying, like, look how awesome we are. Because if, it's, if you know my friend, you know that there's plenty of other things in his life. He's not a good person. Just they happened not to do that. But it brought out this sense in, my, in, in the people that he was ministering to or doing parental counseling with that, oh, okay, that's the standard that God sets out there and we're not that. So this, this idea of darkness. Okay, but not only that, Paul says, I'm going to skip that. Um, light exposes, so it shows darkness, but it also exposes the reason for darkness. It doesn't just say, hey, it's dark. That light actually gives the reason for why it's dark. And the Christian story actually gives a reason for what's wrong in the world. Um, in the 1900s in London, there were these two like super famous philosophers, powerhouse academics. 
And they got gathered together at Cambridge or, or Oxford. Um, I can't remember which one it is. Um, but they came together, and the, their topic they were talking about was, what's wrong in the world? And people who were there write that these people did a great job of describing the way the world is and what's wrong with the world. But they even admitted, they say, as to why things are wrong and why things look this way, we don't know. But the Bible, this, this kingdom of God, the realm where God is reigning, gives an answer to that. Now, we may not like it, but Jesus says elsewhere in John 3.19, He says, And this is the judgment, this is the verdict, that the light has come into the world. But people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It's, it's actually not that difficult, but here's what He's saying. He's saying this world is in darkness because at the end of the day, people want to do what they want to do. The people just want to do what they want to do. If it feels good, do it. Okay? And that is the essence of darkness. That's what happened in the beginning in the, the biblical story with Adam and Eve, that they didn't want to do what God told them to do. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. And from that point, the world has become unraveled. That is the definition of darkness. That's the source of darkness. It's not an intellectual problem necessarily. It's a volitional problem. It's a nature problem. When we come into the world, our nature wants what is dark. And we will go after it. Unless something happens. The third thing that the light does is it shows the way forth. Psalm 119 says, David says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That God's word gives a way forward. So where does this path take us? What does it mean to be light? What does Jesus say? He say, the light, this path leads to me. He says, I am the light of the world in John. I am the light of the world. He is saying, yes, this world is dark, and I am the one who provides the way forth. And that's why elsewhere he says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whoever comes to me has it. So because darkness is a part of us from birth, we have it in us. Not only do we live in it, we have it in us. It's not an out there problem. It's an in here problem. And so if our nature is darkened by that, we don't need more knowledge. We don't need more rules to follow because those things will only just serve to increase our sin, to show us how sinful we are. But I can't keep those rules. Dang it. So Jesus gives a different way. He gives a different way out. And he says to Nicodemus, who asked that very question, so who, what do I do to be saved? He says, you must be born again. That you have to trade that nature that longs for darkness and sin. You have to put that to death. And I have to put a new nature inside of you. A nature that wants light rather than darkness. And so what happens then when I'm born again? One minute and I'm done. The Bible says that when that happens, when I die to that old me that loves the darkness, then Jesus sends a new, a new me into me. He gives me new life. And He sends His Holy Spirit into us to illuminate us from the inside. And it begins to work out. 
The Bible calls us, it says that we are united to Jesus. Just you're fused to Him. He becomes part of you. You become part of Him. Everything that was His becomes yours. Everything that was yours becomes His. And so that's why He can say, I'm the light of the world. And He turns around to His followers and says, you are light of the world. But if what we're hearing in this, please do not walk away saying that Jesus says, go be light of the world. Go be salt. Because to do that and to hear that is hearing Jesus say something He's not saying. He's not giving us this moralistic platitude in charge. He's saying, if you are united to me, you will be these things. You will be these things. It is the difference between being a train car and loading yourself up with all of the right stuff and thinking that you are going somewhere. And you get your train car filled and you shut the door and you're just like, yes, I am a train car. I am a train. It's the difference between being a train car that is sitting there that's not connected to the engine and being a, and being a train car that is connected to the engine that is already on the move. And friends, when you're united to Jesus, you are united to Him. And He is the light. And He is a part of you. And He works through you. And He begins to use you in the world. That's the gospel. That's what happens in us. And if that's not true of you, I just wonder if just a little bit, if that's curious, what it would be like to live that way. To where you don't use money for your own good, but you can use it to serve people. Where you don't use power and authority to lord it over people, but you can use it to help people because of your status. Where you don't use sex and relationships as a means to manipulate people, it's a means to show love for people. You can serve others. And Jesus frees us up to do that because we're united to Him. Let's pray.